Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to Season 4 of the Fast Track Impact Podcast. Welcome back. Uh, this was a, a bit of an unplanned sabbatical. It's been a few weeks since I managed to put anything out on the podcast. Uh, this uh, was because my uh, daughter is now my uh, podcast producer and she has had exams. So exams are now over and she is back to work and uh, we have the podcast again. So we've got a few coming up. Um, today I am talking to George Hope and from there is the uh, the much promised for a long time uh, series on evaluation coming up from next week. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. Okay, so this week we are going to be thinking about how we can all communicate more effectively online. And uh, of course, this is the Fast Track Impact podcast, so we're thinking about this in terms of communicating effectively with the people that might ultimately use or benefit from our research. And I think this is increasingly a worry for a lot of us. Um, uh, There's been a lot of discussion about uh, Twitter in particular, but other platforms as well, where trolling might be on the increase. Uh, Platforms that can become incredibly toxic uh, very fast for people. Uh, Or just getting sucked into platforms like Instagram or whatever it might be, and just spending interminable amounts of time on these, which might be quite a lot of fun, who knows, but with no measurable impact for that investment of time. Uh, Are we wasting our time? Are we risking our mental health uh, uh, for nothing? Uh, Or can we do this in ways that mitigate those risks and ultimately mean that the time we spent is time, uh, the time we spend is time well spent and actually achieves some form of impact? Today's guest has spent his career navigating exactly these kinds of risks and crucially helping researchers do the same and generate more impact online. I am delighted to be able to introduce George Hope, who is communications manager at Oxford Net Zero and also on the greenhouse gas removal hub based at the University of Oxford. I'm on a project as part of that greenhouse gas removal uh, program. That's how I met George. Um, And uh, George has uh, an illustrious career. He's a member of the Chartered Institute of Public Relations, and he has experience in communications, public engagement, policy engagement, events, and program management. So welcome, George, to the podcast. Thank you very much, Mark. Yeah, it's really great to be here. I should just mention there might be a little bit of noise in the background, so I hope that the uh, banging from the builders next door doesn't uh, interfere too much. But yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you very much. I'm a big fan of the podcast. It is a pleasure to have you, George, and uh, and no worries. Fingers crossed that we can get through without interruption. Um, 
So first, in my introduction, I think um, the, the thing that that is the biggest barrier that I hear from academics are the risks of trying to achieve impact online. Uh, and there are lots of different risk factors, and there are the traditional ones, my ethnicity, my gender, uh, things like that. Uh, but in my experience, actually, just what you study is, uh, is uh, 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 the, probably the biggest risk factor for academics. Um, and a lot of people might not think, um, but the fact that I study climate change is enough to get me um, climate skeptic uh, trolls online. Um, and I think that uh, if you're particularly thin-skinned, as I am, um, uh, I'm, uh, I'm not that robust to, uh, to, to trolling and, and things like this. My, my mental health is, health is fragile at the best of times. Uh, then, yeah, uh, is this something that I want to do? How can I do this in a way that is not going to, uh, to risk my mental health, uh, to, to risk my time, to risk my mental, my, sorry, to risk my, my, my reputation? Uh, my, my job is not worth a misjudged social media uh, post. So uh, what do you do with, with academics who take these kind of concerns to you? How do you help people to, to manage these kinds of risks so that we can start engaging uh, on these kinds of platforms safely and responsibly? Yeah, absolutely. I think there definitely are real concerns and real risks that people have about communicating online. Um, I think we've all been in that situation where we're about to click send or tweet or whatever it is, and we wonder whether that post is is too political or too divisive or too personal, and we fear that backlash. And I've certainly, I think, deleted tweets that were probably absolutely fine, just, just for fear that somebody might say something. Um, and I think, sadly, some people are much more likely to receive abuse online. Um, yeah, you mentioned kind of gender and ethnicity. I think particularly women re researchers are kind of um, more targeted than men. Um, so I think it is worth thinking about carefully how you'd feel about that. And we each, as you alluded to, have a kind of a, th a threshold really for, for what we can cope with. Um, and I think it's worth saying that if that's not for you, then that's okay. And there are other things you could be doing with your time instead. I don't think, you know, if you, if you decide not to use social media at all, I don't think that means, okay, impacts out the window. <laughs> I hope you would agree with that, Mark, but um, I do Absolutely. think that's uh, a useful point to state. Um, I think privacy is, is something you can manage online as well. Um, you don't need to give lots of personal information about yourself if you don't want to. Um, I think personalizing content can be really engaging and some people do that very successfully and they grow an audience and, and, and that's partly around their personality. Um, but I don't feel like that's essential again. And I don't think people should feel like they have to do that. Um, uh, and on that privacy point, I mean, all of the, all of the social media platforms have levels of privacy that you can adjust. So you can change the settings to allow certain people to see certain things or just leave things out completely. Um, and as a researcher, you know, the focus largely is on the actual work you're doing rather than you as a personality. Um, uh, so I think leaving that out is fine. Um, for, for the climate area in particular, which is what I'm working on, um, I think one of the main fears about getting involved in, with the online world is that there are obviously climate deniers out there, there are climate skeptics out there, 
and how do you deal with them? Um, and in general, uh, I don't think it's particularly worth engaging with people who want to just pick a fight online. Um, I think because people can hide behind that anonymity, they can be overly harsh or critical, and that can have a big toll on 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 you um, as an individual. And I don't, I just don't think that's worth <laughs> getting into. But I do think there's always nuance in these situations, and um, the ones where I've thought about, okay, maybe we should engage with that person, is where there is a genuine interest or a, or a question about the research, or they don't understand something and they want more clarity. Um, you know, they're not being rude, for, for example, but they might be quite direct with how they're communicating. And I think that's okay. And I think that's surely an opportunity to rephrase something, um, rewrite something so a wider audience can understand it. Um, and I think there are certain techniques we can use, like avoiding acronyms and, and jargon. Um, I think in the in the training session that we did, which I think you'll probably mention later, um, Olivia, who I led the training with, had uh, made a point of if you're not sure whether it's jargon would you say it outside of work or would you, would you say it to anybody other than your kind of research colleagues or your scientific colleagues and if not then it's probably a bit too jargony so maybe avoid using it on social media um so i think uh avoiding jargon is important i think um the other aspect is defining terms um so the two projects that I work on, I think uh, with Oxford Net Zero, we do a lot on defining what Net Zero means and, and that's really important. Um, and likewise with the Greenhouse Gas Removal Hub, what does greenhouse gas removal mean? And we have academics who kind of have authority on that. So I think keeping that content accessible, um, if, if you want to engage with those kind of more skeptical audiences, um, and I think skeptical audiences in general, I think when we're communicating online, we might not always just want to focus on the facts um, that we're communicating. Um, so facts are very important, but I think they won't convince everyone on their own. So you backlash on on kind of factual information is, is common and, and researchers might think, well, why why am I receiving this nasty comment about something that's just a study with an output and a result that we're showing? Um, you know, I'm not even putting any opinions necessarily in there. Um, but actually, I think sometimes that could be because people want to hear about things that relate to something in their real lives. They don't necessarily just want to hear facts, um, but, you know, Maybe it's something of how it could uh, lead to better outcomes for children's health, or maybe it's something that could make electric vehicles cheaper. Um, just picking two examples um, there. But I think it's, it's about connection, really. Um, and social media is called social media for a reason, because it's kind of a two-way um, conversation, and it's about connecting with people. So I think having some kind of dialogue and making it more personal can be a good approach for those kind of skeptical audiences or people who are just a bit confused and not sure what you're talking about um but i think with when it comes to a more abusive environment then then i would say there's there's no reason to be engaging with that 
Yeah, so many things I'd love to dig into with this, but let's let's start with um, this this question of uh, conspiracy conspiracy theorists uh, to 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 perhaps be um, unkind uh, skeptics um, to perhaps be kinder. These are people with a, a different perspective uh, to to you. How do you deal with uh, with these kinds of people? And, uh, and I think it's really important to underline. Yeah, you don't have to engage. Um, uh, you can set. Uh, things uh, at least on Twitter nowadays, so that uh, that you cannot receive replies uh, to particular messages that you put out there. Um, I know many people who just have a policy of no, I never reply publicly to anyone, um, but uh, but yeah, I'll happily move conversations with those who I want to onto a direct message or email them uh, or whatever else it might be uh, to just not generate too much attention to something that uh, that could become toxic. And um, so, yeah, leaving. Uh, messages unanswered publicly uh, there's no shame in that and that is actually fairly regular practice and and i would argue that yeah safe uh, as you said but uh but as you said sometimes there's a sense that yeah actually you know what um there, there's an openness here um so uh, i was recently um i could say trolled by uh, a canadian professor who um he said very bluntly to me um uh, when i was trying to defend the word stakeholder online you're on the wrong side of history uh, this this is this is wrong um and i fundamentally disagree with you and she was very emphatic in her language and my instant reaction was whoa okay that's 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 um that's fairly fairly strong but uh, my response was uh, actually well tell me more why why do you think i'm on the wrong side of history and the engagement with this particular professor changed my mind um uh, and uh, i ended up uh, writing two blog posts uh, running a, an international process um, and we're now uh, trying to write a, a wikipedia entry maybe that turns into an article uh, which argues the opposite of what i initially put out uh, and it was simply because someone online was willing to engage with me um, and try and persuade me and, and change my mind. So, so it happens. Um, and that can be us taking that role of saying, you know what? Yeah, I, I think you're wrong. And I'm going to engage with you in a way that doesn't put you on the defensive and that tries to actually influence your thinking. And if this is someone who has influence, um, I might have some influence with a few people. Yeah, maybe it's worth actually trying to change that person's mind. Uh, but uh, for for the proper uh, <clears throat> conspiracy theorists, um, I mean, I've got someone in my family network um, who consistently says climate change is a good thing because CO2 is the gas of life. Without CO2, plants wouldn't be able to make oxygen and we'll all die. Um, uh, and, and this is someone who doesn't have a, a particularly strong educational background um, in taking people like this right back to first principles. I could try to do that. But uh, what's interesting is the evidence on conspiracy theory is that it is not facts-based. Uh, and in fact, uh, the more facts you push at someone, uh, the, the more likely they are to say, well, clearly that is not right, because while well, you're a scientist, you are one of them. Uh, you're part of the, part of the problem. Um, uh, and essentially, the psychology of consp conspiracy theory is it's about creating an in-group of other like-minded people who are going against <clears throat> the grain of society. Uh, we are a minority uh, who have the truth, uh, and there is something incredibly... 
secure, comforting about being with a tribe of people who are different, but different to everyone else, but the same as you. And, and it's that sense of belonging that, that ultimately attracts people to these kinds of beliefs. Uh, and, and I think then we have to ask the question, well, actually, uh, are these beliefs helpful or harmful? Um, uh, and uh, we talked about this at the training that, uh, that you did um, so, so for background, um, I invited George to uh, to do some training uh, with the United Nations Environment Program (UNEP) um, program that training researchers uh, on communication skills. Uh, and uh, one of the examples that that, that I brought up, uh, which is a, a live issue for me uh, as a Christian uh, in church networks, is people who believe that uh, the world was literally created in seven days. Uh, and my personal view is, you know what, be my guest. If that's what you want to believe, actually, for me to sit down and convince you that uh, evolution is more evidence-based could lead to you losing your faith. And uh, and the people in my network, that is literally, my faith is based on these principles. If this isn't true, then nothing else in the Bible is true. My faith falls apart. And actually, for me, uh, that's an innocuous belief that I don't believe has any evidence, but actually to disabuse someone of that belief could actually be more harmful than it is helpful. And yet there are other conspiracy theories that actually, because I believe all this stuff, uh, I'm not able to go out of my house for fear of what those 5G masks are going to do to my brain. Uh, and, and I think at that point, this is not about looking at the evidence for 5G and cancer or whatever it might be. It's about saying, well, look, yeah, I get that. Uh, and that's a really important belief that you have. But how helpful or harmful is it? And can you look at that in the, in the broader scheme of things and potentially now yeah, investigate alternative beliefs, not because they're more evidential, but because they might be less harmful and more helpful for you personally? <laughs> what do you think about that as an approach to dealing with conspiracy theorists? I think it's a really interesting one. I think absolutely agree that sense of belonging is what entrenches people within those in those views in the first place and it makes complete sense to me that you know relating it to them putting it within their own context would be the avenue to to getting them to think a little bit differently about it and i think sometimes if we're able to there could be a kind of a bit of a moral imperative for us to say something or try to do that in an effective way um as you say you can put that you know, it's very natural as a human being to put that kind of defensive um, wall up in front of you. And once that's up, I think there's not really any hope or, or reason to engage um, because I just don't think that person's in a place to hear those things. So actually, if you are wanting to kind of inform and engage and persuade people, finding ways kind of very tactically in a sense, which makes it sound a bit um, cold, but it's tactically finding ways to engage with them that, that that doesn't lead to them putting up that wall in the first place. Because once they've put that wall up, it's, it's kind of over. Um, mm. And I think it makes sense to think about it in relation to, to people's lives and their interests and their contacts. Um, but as, as I say, I think there is a sort of moral imperative that if their views are causing harm to themselves or people within their groups or people outside of that, then there probably is um, uh, a kind of moral imperative to to try and engage with them in in one way or another, um, whilst also sort of um, 
maintaining that kind of respect for them as a, as another human being. Mm. Exactly. And I think that was, you know, pick your battles uh, effectively. And and that was what Laurie Prange, um, uh, this Canadian professor, did. Yeah, here is someone who has written a lot of articles that have been high, highly cited using the word stakeholder he was defending. And uh, I, I detect a bit of self-interest here on Mark's part. And, uh, and actually, you know what, here is someone that needs to be convinced that this is, uh, this is harmful. Um, this is unhelpful to others to, to defend a word like this, given what she knew and understood from her interaction with Canadian Indigenous groups. Uh, and great, um, have those battles, um, uh, pick them, win them, um, when there is a moral imperative. Uh, and now that's a battle that I'm fighting with others. <laughs> uh, I've, I've come over to her side. Um, <clears throat> you, uh, you mentioned um, the uh, personal stuff, political stuff, um, in your view, um, this is this is about work. It's not about becoming a personality. Um, I once did a training many years ago with someone um, who had a very different view on this. Uh, he's a social media academic expert. He studies social media, and his view very strongly was: yeah, it's about building connection, um, empathy with your audience, and so it's about sharing my personal life and what I've had for breakfast and all of this kind of stuff. Um, uh, and I think. <clears throat> My personal view is, yeah, I'm with you. I feel really uncomfortable about that. But I think that there is an argument and some people uh, have very successfully become personalities and built um, built, built real connection with their audience uh, in, in that kind of way. Um, uh, uh, looking at Brian Cox and his use of social media, he is overtly political. Um, and I know many other academics that are overtly political in their social media use. Um, until recently, I was always uh, very much neutral. I took care to make sure I followed people across the political spectrum and just muted the ones I didn't like. So nobody could even analyze who I followed to infer my political leanings. Uh, I read a, a book recently. Um, uh, that I've mentioned in a previous uh, podcast episode that convinced me that actually I need to get off the fence and become political. Um, as it happens, I had to, to quit a government post that um, required me to be neutral um, because of my mental health. And uh, as a result of that, I can now be political. I joined the Green Party, which is Scottish Greens. Um, uh, I'm now overtly supporting Scottish independence. Um, uh, and yeah, you might hate me for that. You might unfollow me for that. You might uh, not want me to do that. But ultimately, that's kind of a moral decision that I've made. And, and I'm willing to accept the risks that, uh, that come with that as a, as mm. a researcher. So. So yeah, views on on these. Um, how, how would you respond um, to these these alternative approaches to being very personal, very political, potentially? Yeah, and I think it comes back to the personal choice angle. I think for some people, their um, you know it might be their kind of demographic background, it might be their mental health. I just I just don't think that it's worth saying to people like that, you have to have a personal brand, you have to build up this um, reputation online. Um, you know, I, that's sort of the point where I disagree with the, the social media trainer that you mentioned. Um, not to say that they were necessarily saying that's right for everyone. But I, I do I do see the other side of it where um, if you are able to inject some of your own personality, and you want to do that, um, then I think that's really powerful. I also think that if you're willing to be a little bit more political, then, you know, researchers are still a very respected 
group of people. Um, <laughs> I think that's worth saying as well. It sometimes might feel like they're not, but there are an awful lot of people who will, will look to um, uh, academics, researchers um, as a source of authority. You know, they might click through, it's simply as quick clicking through to a Twitter profile and seeing that you work for a big academic institution, you know, rightly or wrongly, <laughs> that does give you some credibility to um, to a large group of, of people, I would suggest. Yeah. I would suggest also that there's something just honest and authentic about it because there have been surveys done of the political views of researchers um, and as a whole um, uh, this is US and, and UK data I don't know to what extent this held elsewhere but um, as a whole the the academy tends to be left of center in its uh, in its politics and when you then break that down to social sciences arts and humanities it is heavily left-leaning in its politics uh, and yet we claim we're neutral we're objective um, we're independent. Uh, and I think that when you look at the, the kind of things that we support generally, um, uh, if you're a social scientist in the arts and humanities, even this whole agenda around uh, decolonizing uh, the curriculum, decolonizing research, uh, changing words like, uh, like stakeholder, it is a, a deeply political project. Um, and there are many on the right of politics uh, who fundamentally disagree with that. Uh, and I think that, that rather than presenting this as well this is objectively the the right thing to do presenting that as yeah this is political the, these are preferences uh, and debate <laughs> openly uh, i think that that's important and i think for, for me part of what what worries me about um uh, some of the the, the more kind of left leaning um, stuff that we see on social media from the academy is this idea that, well, yes, this is the truth. This is the right way. Um, and uh, if you want to be on the right side of history, then you have to have the same view as us. And actually, you can't express another view. And if you do, you will be taken down. And I think we need to protect that, that freedom of, of speech. Um, uh, that, that we can debate these things. Um, uh, and for me, part of that is being transparent about the fact that, yeah, this is political uh, and these are my politics. And yeah, you can disagree with that uh, and that's fine. Uh, and let's have that debate. Which then brings us on to what's happening on, on Twitter at the moment, because that is, of course, uh, Elon Musk's stated aim. Um, uh, there does seem to be a, a healthy pinch of hypocrisy in terms of how he is uh, implementing it. But his stated aim uh, of, uh, of enabling freedom of speech on that platform uh, would go with the grain of what I'm saying. And yet... Uh, many people very upset about uh, the consequences uh, of uh, of that particular um, uh, approach to how he's managing the platform. I wonder, uh, any thoughts, reflections on what's what's happening in uh, in the land of Twitter at the moment, George? Mm. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to kind of observe what's going on. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it it develops over the next few years. I don't think we know too much about where exactly that's going. Um, I am concerned about the huge changes that have been made um and the possibility of, of it giving rise to more extreme views and unchecked misinformation um i do think that's really worrying and i suppose it comes back to um the point that you were making about having being able to have open debate uh, is a good thing 
but is there a kind of healthy level of respect um are we treating each other fairly and kindly i think that's that's got to be the the line really of where it crosses um you can kind of be firm and disagree with people but when it becomes abusive then that's unacceptable and i think big companies like twitter um do have a responsibility to their customers or or users i suppose in this case um and social media companies are coming to terms with over many, over many years um how much potential damage their platforms are capable of inflicting on people and it's quite interesting to see sort of the policy um arena trying to sort of catch up with that a little bit i know there's been talk over the last few years about um this kind of online harms um uh, policies that that the uk government are looking into i'm not actually sure exactly where they are at the moment with that but um trying to make the online sphere a safer place for people and it seems like twitter has taken a step backwards <laughs> rather than forwards in in that particular sense um and i can see you know the arguments for increasing the kind of freedom of speech element but i think there are dangers that come with that um i think they're bringing in a new ceo so we'll have to wait and see um who that is and their attitude although maybe they won't have much ironically freedom to, to do as they wish uh, with elon musk kind of breathing down their neck i don't know it's that's kind of speculation um i think it in a kind of research capacity i think it's a shame that so many people have invested so much time and energy into Twitter. And now we're talking about the potential risks of um, uh, something major happening to Twitter or um, a kind of mass exodus. Um, I'm sure you all have seen Mark on your timelines. Some researchers have chosen already to leave Twitter. Um, and historically, I think Twitter has been quite a good place for the research community. I think, it's been really useful um, in, in a way of kind of convening us together. Um, maybe there's maybe there's a point in there that <laughs> we should or could be careful about over-relying on a particular platform or a particular company. Um, and I think if we, we sometimes talk about communications sort of being almost multilingual across um, different platforms, and and sometimes um, maybe that's a bit more protective because you're putting your effort into several things rather than one thing. And I do feel for people who've built up tens of thousands of followers by really good and consistent engagement and work on Twitter, then finding that maybe that's not the place for them anymore. So I do feel for them. Yeah, I think there there are groups of people who get real comfort, real support. Um, I, I reached out um, and uh, and spoke about my own mental health challenges and got this. Yeah, you know, I was really worried what would happen in terms of of trolling, but I just got this wave of, of support and other people then taking their courage in their hands and and talking about their own experiences of of mental health challenges in the academy. Uh, and I did that on LinkedIn and on Twitter, but the response was by far and away bigger on Twitter and. Uh, and incredibly supportive and and healthy and yeah it was it was a really positive uh, experience so it is possible um 
and um, and and I think yeah, there's a lot of people who have gone over to Mastodon and then come back because they weren't getting the the level of information or support or or help that they they were getting on Twitter. Um, and and of course, then it is possible to adjust your settings to make yourself increasingly safe. But the problem is, if we want to use a, a platform like Twitter for uh, public engagement um, uh, and specific engagement with key organizations, individuals, groups who might benefit from our research, then you're going to want to keep things open. And of course, then you've got many far fewer options to protect yourself. And I, I think that there is a real trade-off there. I think there's always been a trade-off and it just remains to be seen uh, as to how much more toxic it gets for people engaging in controversial issues uh, and whether people continue to engage and, and a certain, at a certain point. And as you said, it differs for all of us. Uh, there's a tipping point at which actually, you know what, yeah, I'm not prepared to continue engaging for impact on this platform and I start locking things down so I can still use it, but use it safely. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, moving on, uh, the um, the training we talked about um, uh, earlier that you gave um, for for UNEP, um, and thanks again for that. Uh, the, the the key thing that, that that I took from that was about being strategic, and I think there's something to be said for just being in these networks, uh, engaging, seeing what's going on, commenting as you go. Um, being available, being approachable. But uh, the, the, the risk is that we spend all this time, we take all this risk, and actually we've got nothing to show for it. And the social media platforms are great at giving you the reach metrics, uh, but not so good at giving you any sense that anyone has changed their mind, their attitudes, they're doing anything, there are any benefits that are arising from this. Um, uh, and so the, the key message that I got from you was, great, engage, um, but do so more strategically, and then uh, you're going to be more likely to actually get impacts from this. So could you share some of the, the key lessons that, that you were trying to get across in the training? Um, and uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll maybe conclude with, uh, with this, if that's all right. I'll, I'll dig in, find out a bit more. But, um, but for me, this is, I think, mo the most important take home from this. It's, it's all about trying to be more strategic. So, George, over to you. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the, as you say, that was one of the main messages I wanted to get across in this training um, was thinking strategically about communications. So that's a, a way you can save yourself a lot of time and energy. Um, I think many of us will have uh, found that going on social media can um, take up an awful lot of time. Um, I actually deleted social media over the Christmas break for the 10 days or so because it, it just can eat into your time um, rather significantly. So um, how then can we think about using it more effectively was where I was coming from. Um, and I think sometimes we think, okay, there are so many different ways of communicating online and that can be quite overwhelming, um, especially when researchers are often very busy people. Um, you know, in, in the traditional academic research sense, often people are doing their research, they're, they're teaching. There's an awful lot of admin that comes along with that. And then to say, okay, well, <laughs> doing social media on top of all of those things is, is an awful lot. Um, and in the presentation that I gave for the training, I said, actually, there are, you know, I, I think I listed about 20 different 
options for communicating online from sort of social media to writing a blog to writing newsletters and creating our own website. And I think that's naturally, somehow that's naturally the way around we think of it. We tend to think um, of those avenues first <laughs> and then we kind of leap in, or at least I, I've um, been guilty of that in the past, I think. Um, and, you know, we think, oh, I could use Twitter, I could make a video, and then we just kind of crack on. Um, and I do think that's sort of the wrong way around, actually. Um, and not to mention that it can be pretty overwhelming and a bit disengaging because there's this kind of paradox of choice. Well, there's so many things that I'm not going to do any of them and <laughs> kind of close the laptop and do something else. Um, so I think my first message would be forget about those things, actually. Forget about all those channels. Um, I think that's easier said than done, but forget about them at first and go back to the why um and forget about the how in a sense um so what why do you want to communicate online um what do you want to achieve um and then it's thinking about who the audiences are who do you actually want to communicate with and why that audience in particular um and once you've identified that audience you might think where are this audience um you can do a bit of research on you know where that audience might be um so which um, media, for example, could you use to reach them? So if it's business leaders, for example, is there a blog that CEOs read? If it's, um, you know, if it's business leaders, maybe working with your comms team on writing an op-ed and sending it to the Financial Times, it's kind of notoriously tricky to get something in the Financial Times, but um, I think aim high. Um, so not necessarily leaping into that social media option. Um, if you wanted to engage with members of the public and ask for their opinions, it might be Facebook, for example. Um, or if, uh, if you already know that the most appropriate group um, for your piece of work um, to target is um, one small team in a government department, then maybe you could reach out to them um, and ask them what would be helpful rather than going through kind of um, traditional online communications um, or, or sorry, it is a more traditional way of communicating. Just send an email and say, you know, I'd be interested in writing a, a, a briefing about the research or maybe we could um, have a one hour kind of conversation over Zoom and I'll present my findings and then we can have a discussion about them. Um, so it might not always be that social media is the best avenue it may be but it might not be as well um my my previous role actually was at imperial college and it was um, engaging specifically with policymakers. so whereas my current role is kind of slightly wider remit in terms of audiences um i was working specifically helping researchers um, engage with policy and policymakers. um and it's not always easy but there are, are some ways to do it um uh, and if if listeners are, are working at a university, then there might be people at their college or university who can help help with that. Um, and the last point I would say is that quite a lot of this is is sort of trial and error. I think there's no harm in trying something out and then seeing if it works and then adapting it. Um, it's not always clear what will work best. I think we can think strategically and and, and kind of suggest an avenue. Um, but then trying it out is the main thing. Um, and about six months ago, we did a, a campaign 
with core um just to get a bit of um a small kind of a group of, of the public to to feedback on some of the ideas that we had for for some of our funding um and we started by using twitter and for whatever reason i have i have some theories about why twitter didn't really work but we just didn't get much interest from twitter so we actually switched to facebook and then suddenly we had hundreds of people wanting to 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 join this um kind of public focus group so we didn't really know that and now we do we know that facebook was a bit more effective in that sense so um yeah i, I think just thinking about it like that and having trial and error is really important yeah, and I guess the perseverance as well. But the key thing is you have that that target in mind. This is what we want to change. How now do we get to to that particular place? Um, so a life thing for me at the moment is we've spotted a a a, a bit of guidance, uh, um, a quite important policy guidance uh, to farmers that um, is factually incorrect on uh, uh, on, on a government website. Uh, which, is, which is misleading farmers um, uh, as we speak, um, and um, and we tried to communicate with the relevant team um, and got no response. Um, so that was the emails, the first uh, first port of call, second port of call as well. We're going to uh, we're going to turn this into a policy brief, um, and we're going to send you this policy brief, and we're going to explain that um, uh, that this is something that we are planning to publish. Look, you can see it's a policy brief. This will be all over social media. Um, and at the point that we publish this and put it out on social media, uh, this is going to be quite embarrassing uh, because, um, yeah, it, you you are very clearly misleading farmers. The evidence is is absolutely clear. This is factually incorrect. Um, uh, and uh, but of course, um, uh, you can change this, and then well, there's no point in putting this out because job done. Um, uh, and so that is what then got us a meeting. Um, and uh, and and I'm hoping now it, it was with a team. It wasn't quite the right team. Um, that team is now reaching out to the right team and saying, "Guys, you really need to talk to these people and uh, answer their emails because this could be really embarrassing." And so the end result may be actually that there is no publicity. We do not publish the the um, the, the, the the briefing, um, the, the policy brief. We put nothing on social media, but actually we don't need to because we achieved the goal um, with the threat of doing that. And it's not it's not an explicit threat, but it is the reality. That's what we do as researchers. And uh, and if there's evidence that says the government's doing something which is factually incorrect, then it's our responsibility to publish that if the government does nothing. So, um, so yeah, great. Don't start with, well, we need, this will get us loads of views to our policy brief series. This will get us massive traction on social media. This could get us media coverage as well. Wow, imagine all of those metrics, uh, which potentially just now breaks relationships, um, maybe even just puts up a defensive wall and doesn't achieve the, the goal that we want. Um, uh, and yeah, if there is another way, then great. So it's about keeping your eye on that that final final goal. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it certainly shows that there's a kind of non-linear way of doing things and you'll be trying out different methods before you get to where you want to be. And also it just reinforces the idea that you have to think about what you want to achieve first, because like you say, I think, you know, having 200 retweets on something that might be really useful actually, depending on what you're trying to do, but it might be 
um, not useful at all, or even in the example that you gave, it could even be damaging. So I think once you go back to those objectives and you think about them really carefully, then that kind of helps inform what you should be doing. Uh, and it makes it much clearer. Mm. Whereas if you were to jump into, okay, we've got these great findings and they're really important, then you could just kind of, you know, kind of go off and run with them in directions that wouldn't be that helpful. And also, you know, as, as going back to the time point, we all have limited amount of time and maybe that's not the best way to be using it as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, George, it has been a real pleasure getting to dig into all of this stuff. Um, uh, I always uh, have all these thoughts. I've been you know, thinking about these issues, trying to work them out for myself in terms of my own practice, but being able to talk to someone with expertise, with experience, working with multiple researchers, it is, is always a real pleasure just triangulating these ideas and getting to have that open debate and conversation. And my hope is that whether you agree with George or me at listening to this, that this is provoking your own thoughts, so that uh, you are now reflecting on your own practice. And that as a result, that uh, that you might take a different uh, approach to some of the risks that uh, that you are exposed to, a different approach to working with uh, skeptics uh, or conspiracy theorists, and a more strategic approach to your online engagement. George, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Mark. It's been great. Thank you.